in large measure, the small businesses and entrepreneur community is being wildly underserved by you know kind of the big cloud you know folks because you know, as I said they're they're out there chasing enterprise revenue a lot of what they're doing is you know really focused on lift and shift of existing workloads and, and trying to get people kind of into cloud and and that's going to be years right you know there's a lot a lot of systems uh, that can benefit from that move and so I think the carving out of the niche is just staying laser focused on you know what are the needs of that smaller team small developer uh, community and just making sure you're putting together a product roadmap and a delivery plan that's focused on nailing you know that crowd here's a question for the audience is your code compliance ready think about it stay ready for SOC 2 iso or hipaa compliance audits with rewind backups for github Rewind offers automatic daily backups and rapid recovery for GitHub with auto reports, Amazon S3 Sync, security assessments, and more. Learn more at rewind.com slash four slash GitHub. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about many things, cloud and infrastructure and container, all the good things that we talk about on the podcast I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow, and I'm joined, as I often am, by my wonderful co-hosts, Cassidy and Ryan. Hello. Hey, y'all. Y'all is my favorite gender-neutral term, but yes, I guess that there's a bit of a Southern inflection there. Yeah, and in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh, we had yins. Yins? Oh, uh, yeah. My husband that says that. He's from Philly, too. Oh, yeah. I think it's like, hey, yins or yuns. Hey, yins? Hey, yins. Oh, wow. Yins guys want to go downtown to the <laughs> Oh, wow. Today I learned. Our guest today is Gabe Monroy, the Chief Product Officer at DigitalOcean. So I want to say, Gabe, welcome to the show. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me. So, Gabe, this is a podcast all about sort of the art and practice of software. So usually we start out, we ask folks, tell us about your first computer, your first programming language. How'd you get started with all this stuff? I actually have a picture of this, believe it or not. Uh, my first computer was an at and 6300. Man, I was probably about like nine years old. And uh, the first programming language I ever started to dabble in was actually C. And it was just because it was kind of what was available uh, at the time. And so, you know, really had to kind of work through that on my own and, and started, you know, picking up books and, you know, stuff. Uh, you know, actually in my early days, I was doing a decent amount of, you know, kernel programming and stuff like that, just because the lines were blurrier back then between sort of user space, kernel space. It was kind of all one big mess at the time. So yeah, a lot, a lot of work mm. in Linux and um, mostly centered around game development, weirdly. That was like the thing that kind of pulled me in early days. Yeah. A lot of people get there through games. Yeah, that's a pretty common refrain. You know, I was a kid, I was just in love with gaming and then that kind of drew me into the world of programmer. That's what I wanted to, I wanted to do was build games for myself. Yeah, and, the, and you know, most of the games back then, like the reliability wasn't great. So a lot of it was like, man, I just got this thing. I spent all this time downloading this or I figured out how to get this thing on a floppy and like, it didn't work. Damn it. Like, how do I go fix it? So a lot of problem solving in that space. And so then, yeah, I guess, tell us where it went from there. Did you go through some like formal education in CS or did you just end up falling into industry? How did you end up working in the world of software? 
Yeah, you know, I did end up kind of jumping straight into just being a practitioner. Um, one of the first things I did was I set up a bulletin board system when I was like, I think I was like 12 or something. And it actually became pretty popular. And I had like a bank of four modems. I, I remember it was called Gulfstream BBS. You can still find references to it uh, online. But yeah, it was it was really fun and interesting to see the this idea of a community of folks and, you know, all the all the tech required to kind of get, get that all up and running and maintain kind of version compatibility with the latest bulletin board software. Um, so there's a lot of that work. And uh, you know, from there, I started to go into consulting and just kind of helping folks set up networks, you know, Lantastic and just like slanging cable and just, you know, this is before the days of cable we were doing, uh, I forget what preceded that, but you know, a lot of kind of wiring and stuff like that. And then later on, I uh, got a job that was at a company that ultimately got acquired by Intuit and I was doing call center work. It was like sort of level three on call ultimately. And so it was a lot of AIX and you know a lot of just like OPSI stuff. And I got a real big, I don't know, I, I learned a lot about active passive failover systems and just kind of old school IBM like tech P series Z series you know servers and stuff like that and you know kind of from there I, I wound my way into the world of startups in New York City and you know ultimately started you know my own companies uh, started and sold two companies the last one to Microsoft I came to Microsoft and fortunate to pair up with Brendan Burns over there the co-creator of Kubernetes and Brent and I just, you know, did a lot of stuff in open source and Azure services, you know, really driving kind of this idea of openness and open source uh, inside Microsoft. And, you know, I think one of the things I'm more proud of is, um, you know, we built the fastest growing service in the history of Azure with AKS. I think that was a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. And later on, you know, ended up leaving and, and you know, currently uh, on week four of uh, chief product officer at DigitalOcean, where I'm going to be really laser focused on, you know, a different segment of the market, really uh, enabling and empowering developers, which I'm super excited about. Dang, week four. That's exciting. And so what was the, the thing that made you move over to DigitalOcean? Because they are doing a lot of cool things. You know, honestly, for me, it was really about this idea of 44 million new developers are going to rock up into this space by the year 2030. That's like stats from IDC, right? And I'm a very mission-driven person, and I really want to make sure I can do my part in empowering, you know, who are these people, right? They're young people, they're students, they're startups, they're entrepreneurs. And I just kind of felt like the big cloud companies they're extremely focused on enterprise revenue, right? And it makes sense, right? Because it's all about digital transformation for these enterprises. The stakes are really high. Cloud companies are getting paid handsomely for this, right? So it works out for everybody. The world needs it, but the world also needs to be focused on empowering the next 44 million developers who are going to roll into the space. And, and that's mm -hmm. really where my heart is. I think DigitalOcean is, out of any of the cloud companies, the best, you know, I'd say, to kind of drive that mission forward. That's certainly my, my point of view. Yeah. I mean, when I was thinking about this, like cloud computing spaces is one of those spaces where all the big players are in it, right? How do you carve out a niche as a sort of cloud focused company? It's a great question, right? Because the space is crowded, as, as you say. But I do think that in large measure, the small businesses and entrepreneur community is being wildly underserved by you know kind of the big cloud you know folks um, because as I said they're they're out there chasing enterprise revenue a lot of what they're doing is 
you know, really focused on lift and shift of existing workloads and, and trying to get people kind of into cloud. And, and that's going to be years, right? You know, there's a lot, a lot of systems uh, that can benefit from that move. And so I think the carving out of the niche is just staying laser focused on, you know, what are the needs of that smaller team, small developer uh, community, and just making sure you're putting together a product roadmap and a delivery plan that's focused on nailing, you know, that crowd. And it's cool because like in leadership team meetings already at DigitalOcean, it's like, that's what we talk about. Like we talk about what does the small business community need? Everyone in the entire company's laser focused on that. Um, I think that's different. And I think that leads to a different set of outcomes. Yeah. What you said makes a lot of sense to me and is really interesting. Sometimes when I hear, right, these stats, like the 44 million, it just seems incomprehensible to me, you know, yeah, like it's such a big number. Where are all these people coming from? And like, how, where are they all going to sit? I don't know. But yeah, like <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things that you said that really did, you know, stand out to me was like at a corporate level, you can get trapped in sort of that SaaS mentality, that enterprise mentality of like what gets us the best valuation and what's going to make sure the business thrives. But some of the stuff that I think is most exciting to people who are hands-on working in development and open source is like, how can I be impactful and empowering to the next generation and make sure everybody has access to be able to learn these skills and to come into this industry if they want to. But Cassie, maybe you could speak to that a little because I know it's something you've been thinking about. Well, I love the idea of empowering individual developers as much as possible. Indie developers, indie hackers, whatever you want to call them, those small teams, because I feel like they're very often underserved because companies focus so much on the enterprise side of things and they want mm-hmm. to get the big money from the big tech. And and it makes sense. You do get a lot of money from the larger companies. But I feel like the most creativity and a lot of the innovation comes from those smaller teams and those individual developers getting the education they need to build things that are truly innovative that another company might take a lot more time to build because they have so many processes in place. Totally, Cassie. And I, I think one of the big surprises for me, you know, having spent so much time in, in big cloud is that, you know, that phenomenon of, of small teams and small developers, like, I, I think when people think about cloud, I think the promise of cloud was that like developers are going to be empowered, right? Like they were all going to be able to just kind of take their credit card and roll up and get the services they need and start innovating. And, and actually the way this, this works in most cases is it's actually through central IT and these enterprise infrastructure and operations teams that a lot of the kind of cloud mechanics works behind the scenes. And, and so a lot of the products that end up getting built that are ultimately you know, intended for developers, there's kind of this like self through central IT motion. And there's a lot of features and a lot of work being you know, put in to kind of empower you know, those folks. And so there's controls and, and enterprise policy and all this stuff, which is important. Right? I'm not saying it's not important, but that is ultimately overpowering the the needs of like the self-service. And I still don't think we've seen the unleashing of developers, you know, who can just kind of roll up to cloud and get what they need done. Um, I think it's companies like DigitalOcean, like frankly, Netlify that, that are actually focused on that, that part of the space and I'm likely to, to deliver for developers in the end. So you, you've been in the, uh, the cloud space for a while now, almost five years or so. Is that right? Have you seen the sort of needs change based on some of the machine learning, the big, like, massively parallel applications that they use, like GPUs and such? Absolutely. And and I, I think 
you know, my view on this is there's this concept of, of you know, data gravity in, in kind of like the enterprise and, and cloud spaces, like where your data, you know, lives is you know, going to keep you happy on, on a given platform. But I think when you really start to unpack that, what the future holds here is it's really about data to enable machine learning and to enable AI and, and those insights, you know, for folks. And, and so um, I've seen a ton of that, you know, but I think at this point, I would still classify the world of AI and ML as something reserved for folks who have a specialized set of skills, right? We're not yet seeing this really democratized broadly. And I think, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in is working on the the inferencing side of the house, right? I think if you can get more developers using, you know, facial recognition or sentiment analysis or speech to text through off the shelf models, right? Not custom trained models, but basic models and understanding how to build AI enabled applications, that's going to start to create more demand for the ML side of the equation where you can start to use the data that you've stored you know, with your cloud partner to kind of enhance and enrich those models and, and really make the inferencing more you know, applicable to your business. We're in the early days of that stuff. And when I look at the you know, work I've been exposed to around GPT-3 and, and, and the rest of it, because you know, I have worked closely with OpenAI in the past, it's still reserved for the technically elite. And I think that's a big opportunity. We get a lot of pitches from Nigeria, from, from data science people. So there's a huge contingent of, of people up and coming into that. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's an interesting you know, uh, thing that I've been wrestling with is like this concept of data scientists. And you know, I do wonder if like if there's an opportunity to bring some of that data science expertise and, and kind of that discipline to the professional developer audience, right? Because you know, right now, sometimes to me it feels like a lot of the you know, AIML nirvana is being held back by a lack of data science capability. And I, I think it's in my sense is that like professional developers are eager to learn the space, but it's not super straightforward. I mean, it's it's very different than mm-hmm. you know writing backend software or front-end software. And so you know, I really wonder, you know, is there a bridge we can build to help empower professional developers to help out in that space? Or is it something where like, now nah, you're going to have to go to school to really understand the space and, and you know, we're kind of bound by the, the, the skilling and talent development there. I don't know, something I wonder about. That's interesting. I mean, like when you talk about open AI and needing a certain level of technical sophistication, I think one of the things that I always found really interesting about like GPT two and three was that they would sort of throw it out there and you would see people messing around with these, you know, fun little experiments kind of showing off what it could do. And then that kind of almost led back, like the, those, the, some of those ideas seem like they inspired, you know, GitHub Copilot and things like that. Do you mean just that, like, to be able to work with it, you need to have a certain level of technical sophistication? Or you mean like to be inside of a company getting to do that kind of work? Because like, one of the things I guess that was sort of inspiring to me about that was the way OpenAI will throw it out there, people will experiment, and that almost seems to have a feedback loop with some of, you know, what they productize. Yeah, I, I guess the the point I'm trying to make is that you know GitHub Copilot I think is a really great example, right? Where where someone ran an end to end product you know experience and and you know and now you write a comment inside of your IDE and boom you get you know code written for you and, and you, know, you can debate the quality of the code, but it's certainly impressive. <laughs> and, and I think everyone everyone will you know, agree that it's a, it's a pretty big step up in terms of innovation. But I'm not seeing yet 
the average company with the average, and I don't mean average in terms of like mediocre engineers. I mean like average, you know, non GitHub, you know, company being able to put that same sort of product and end to end AI ML experience baked into their applications. And I do believe that that's the future, right? I think that's where we're heading. Um, and I think there's a lot of work that we have to do to sort of unlock that future vision. And you know, that's definitely something I've got my eye on my eyes on. So you're saying it's going to be exciting when the technologies that now are mostly being used by the trillion dollar companies trickle down and become accessible to everyone to build cool new tools and products and experiences. Absolutely. Right. Because GitHub, Microsoft, Google, you know, Amazon, they don't have a monopoly on wisdom. There's a lot of companies out there, you know, smaller companies in the space, you know, innovative entrepreneurs who are going to put their own spin on something like a GitHub Copilot, you know, something like a GPT-3. And that is super exciting to me. Like, like when you unleash all that innovation upon this you know, technology foundation that's rather impressive, who knows what we're going to find, right? But my guess is that that kind of thing is going to change the world. So I wanted to just go back for a second. You mentioned something early on about working with Kubernetes at Azure. I know those are two things that are both popular with our community and on our podcast and also things that we're you know, thinking about using internally. So can you tell us a little bit about that project, what you worked on, sort of like soup to nuts, like how did it come to be? How did you end up working on it? You know, as you went in, what were you hoping? And then you know, how did you work through obstacles and things along the way to get to that sort of final result? Yeah, so this is a pretty fascinating story. And it's funny because I'm involved in, in Kubernetes, you know, the Kubernetes community pretty deeply, you know, founding member of CNCF, et cetera, et cetera. But I actually have a pretty mixed, you know, relationship with, with the project, uh, you know, particularly around developer experience. Even but, better, you know, bring the drama. Yeah, I've got drama for sure. Uh, you know, I was building PaaS systems, you know, to empower, you know, development teams inside of, you know, companies. And that was what we were doing over at Deus. And Deus was effectively like, you know, Heroku-like PaaS experience built on top of ultimately Kubernetes. But in the early days, like we were using Chef, we were using whatever tech we could. And, you know, close with Solomon Hikes and the Docker project, I was actually the largest external contributor to Docker uh, myself for, for a few months um, back in the early days of the project. I wrote the volume subsystems. If you've ever done bind mounts or volumes in Docker, uh, I wrote uh, you know, a bunch <laughs> of that code. Fortunately, all gone now because it was garbage code. Later, you know, I ended up getting in touch with Brendan because we were looking for better uh, orchestration stuff. And so Brendan Burns and I started working on that. But like my my focus was always in building platforms for developers, and and I was using Kubernetes as just kind of underpinnings to to enable that stuff. You know, certainly Brendan and I had this belief that. Kubernetes was never intended to be like the final layer where you know, developers were interacting with it directly. It was intended to be a principled abstraction that would sit on top of the operating system, on top of compute network storage, and allow us to build up, you know, principally towards, you know, towards that. Because I think one of the things that people have seen over and over, time and time again in the PaaS space is people build a great PaaS. Like, you know, I'll take Heroku as an example. People love Heroku. I love Heroku. Right? It's fantastic until it's not right. Like, and all the reasons that you love the you know, product experience and the, the kind of the gated barriers that that provided at, at certain points, like, wait, I need to put a JMX monitoring port on this Java app and the PaaS doesn't let me do it. Whoops. I have to like drop off the abstraction, you know, and, and just kind of bail on the PaaS. Well, with Kubernetes, if you're building the platform on top of Kubernetes, when you drop down, it's not super painful and you can kind of see the other workloads that are running. So that I think was, you know, one of the promises uh, for me. But as I got further into it, I started realizing that there was a lot of demand for Kubernetes raw. 
right? Like the platforms that I were building, you know, were interesting for sure, but like people really wanted their Kubernetes. But as I dug into it more, I really realized it wasn't end developers. It was operations teams. It was people who were previously slanging Puppet and Chef. You know, now they're looking at, you know, containers and, and stuff like that. And, and I don't think Kubernetes has really served the needs of the developer community. I don't think it's going to beyond, you know, being a set of plumbing that I think, you know, is uh, something we all can agree upon or most of us can agree upon. And yeah, I think that, you know, puts me a bit at odds with some folks who are rah, rah, Kubernetes API. But yeah, more I can say on that, but that's that's definitely, Kubernetes is not the end end all be all for, for developers. Do you think those ops folks kind of miss the, the very low level contact with the server, server operations? You know, you go to KubeCon, as I've done many years, they certainly seem excited about it. Certainly, you know, a bunch of them seem super excited about it. I think the idea of you know, immutable uh, you know, infrastructure is is really compelling and for good reason. I think there's a set of problems as an industry we have to solve. Like, you know, one of the big elephants in the room is this idea of like patching. Like, it used to be that with non-immutable infrastructure, you had all these servers running, you could run patch management software. A zero day comes out and it's like, all right, well, we're going to patch the zero day. And, you know, today with immutable infrastructure, it's like, oh, we got to run all these CI pipelines again. And, you know, fingers crossed, we've got them all. And so there's a bunch of problems with kind of the current model where, you know, particularly around security, where I think a lot of a lot of those ops teams are really struggling today with, you know, how to provide end-to-end security you know, on that. So in some ways, I worry that Kubernetes has created as many problems as it solved. <laughs> Another way of putting that. That's always the way it is. You get things that come in to solve the problems and suddenly you're like, this is too much complex. Can we unbuild this now? It's like that XKCD comic where it's just like, wait a minute, there's five different standards that we we should make a new standard to just fix all of this. And it's like, now there's six different standards. <laughs> wanted to get back to the developer focus. Like I've heard of a bunch of people just spinning up a little WS space and running easy to, to run spaces, kind of get out of hand and cost people an arm and a leg. Like how do you find a middle ground. Yeah, so you're talking about sort of this idea of cost and like how, how to do cost management for some of these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had people assigned to just pare down the, the cloud compute space. It's a really fascinating question. And, and I'm not sure there's a easy answer you know, beyond just like making sure you're managing costs. Like, you know, what, one interesting story I like to tell is, you know, back when I used to work at data centers and was, you know, slaying infra in New York City, it used to cost like, you know, I was paying like 250K a month for a Savvis facility, Dang. right? And so the cost was, right, right. And this is like for startups, right? It's like, you, you haven't even validated a product yet, right? And you're, the capital outlay is, is massive, right? And so today, it's like, well, you can get started in one of these you know, spaces, you know, a DigitalOcean $5 droplet, right? Get, get started on an idea. And you can kind of scale your costs up as you get traction on your products. And I think that really unlocks innovation. The trick, of course, for these businesses is managing when the thing scales up, you know, when that idea and, and when you reach that product market fit with that idea and your bill starts to explode, like, are you prepared for that? Yeah, I think the, I think the good news is that, you know, uh, most providers have good answers around around a cost management. And you know, I would argue that not having to do the capital outlay that I was talking about before, and then having the issue on the other side of you know, bills going out of control, that's probably a better space to be in than blocking innovation for folks due to the fact that they mm-hmm. can't reach you know, cloud due to the, or reach IT you know, infrastructure due to the cost of it, if that makes sense. 
All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. It is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, someone who came on Stack Overflow and helped save a question from the dustbin of history, awarded 18 hours ago to Prafula, how to import an Excel file into a SQL server. All right. If you're having trouble with this, we got an answer for you. This one's five years old. It's been viewed 312,000 times. Wow. That might be the most number of views I've ever seen on a question. So clearly something a few people have struggled with. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at stackoverflow.com with questions or suggestions. And if you like to show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog and the newsletter here at Stack Overflow. I am on Twitter at Arthur Donovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog article, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm Cassidy Williams, Director of Developer Experience at Netlify. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And folks, I'm, I'm Gabe Monroy, Chief Product Officer at DigitalOcean. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Gabe underscore Monroy. And yeah, definitely check out my blog post on uh, why I joined DO. Uh, it tells a lot about, you know, I think what the opportunity is uh, for DigitalOcean for the professional developer community going forward. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you soon.